Hope you're doing well this morning. I know it is wonderful to be here worshiping with you all. Uh, this is one of the last times that you'll see me around here for a little bit. My family and I are getting ready to take a sabbatical this summer for June and July. Uh, we're very much looking forward to the chance to get away a little bit and to be renewed by the Lord in that time. Uh, and we greatly appreciate your prayers um, for us this summer. So if you think of us, if the Lord brings us to mind, uh, we would definitely appreciate you uh, lifting us to the Lord in prayer. Well, I, I want to begin by asking you a question. If somebody were to ask you to describe yourself in one sentence, how would you do it? If you had to kind of boil all of who you are down into just a few short phrases, one sentence that, that captures who you are, how would you go about doing that? You know, there's not too many situations in life that we have to do this, but there are a few. One of them is a job interview. And you always get to that point in the job interview where you're asked to comment on your strengths and weaknesses. And I think the best thing to do in that situation is to take a page out of the book of Michael Scott. Michael Scott is the regional manager at paper company Dunder Mifflin, from the office, if you're not familiar. Uh, and he's the regional manager of this branch, but at one point in the third season, he's interviewing for a job in the corporate office, and he's asked, uh, to comment on his strengths. This is what he says. What do you think your greatest strengths as a manager? Why don't I tell you what my greatest weaknesses are? I work too hard, I care too much, and sometimes I can be too invested in my job. Okay. And your strengths? Well, my weaknesses are actually strengths. Oh. Yes. Very good. There you go. Very good. We have a tendency when it comes to describing ourselves or communicating who we are to paint things in the best light possible, right? To, to find our weaknesses and to, to try to cast them as strengths. It's hard to take all of who you are and condense it into just one sentence. It's also hard to take all of who God is and condense him down into one sentence. If you were to, to be asked to describe God in one sentence, how would you do that? What's the first thing that comes to mind? What are those most important things that you would want to say? Richard Dawkins is a well-known atheist, and he's known for being kind of militant against the Christian faith. Uh, and yet he has been able to condense a description of God down into one sentence. This is what he says. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, I knew I was gonna struggle with that one, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That is a mouthful. <laughs> and that's also quite a statement to make. Right? He's not trying to play the Michael Scott game of finding some weaknesses and pitching them as strengths. Right? He is saying that if you believe God exists, 
which he certainly doesn't, but, but if you believe that God exists and is who he's described to be in the Bible, that is somebody that we should want nothing to do with. That is about as unattractive and unpleasant a person as you could possibly imagine. And while most people in our culture wouldn't go as far as Dawkins, they might not use all of this language, that there is a growing sense in which our culture views Christianity and the God of the Bible in an increasingly hostile way. And we want to think about how we can communicate the gospel into a culture like that. As Steve mentioned, this fall, we're going to be doing a nine-week series called Explore God, where we're, we're asking uh, and discussing the, these big questions of faith. And the reason that we're doing this is, is first and foremost, because we hope and we pray that, that people come to know the love of God and choose to walk with Jesus as one of his disciples. But we also want to, to take the opportunity to equip ourselves to engage with our culture in some of these big questions of faith. And in order to do that, we need, we need to understand a little bit about how people think about God and then think about what would be the winsome and effective ways to communicate who God is to our culture. And so we want to be able to think carefully about that. And the reality is that our culture has changed a lot uh, over the years, that people think differently about God and differently about the church than they used to. Paul Gould is a Christian apologist, and uh, he, he's thought a lot about how to communicate the gospel to our culture. And he identifies three bridges that we can use to, to communicate the gospel. Three, three bridges that we can have to connect who God is to our culture. And these three bridges that he talks about are, are rooted in these three fundamental desires that each and every one of us has as human beings. We have the desire for that which is true, for that which is good, and for that which is beautiful that there's, there's something inside each and every one of us as people that is drawn to these things, to the true, to the good, and to the beautiful. And for the last 500 years, the issue of truth has kind of been prominent when it comes to apologetics, to engaging culture and conversations of faith. That is to say that if we could convince people, if we could demonstrate that Christianity was either true or very likely to be true, that we could overcome the biggest hurdle that people had to faith. But in our world today, it's not that people don't care about truth. We, we want to believe what is true. And yet the dominant view is that even if Christianity were true, it is certainly not good, nor is it beautiful. We're going to look together at Exodus chapter 34 this morning. And in Exodus 34, we get God's one sentence about who he is. We're going to see God take all of who he is and boil it down to a, sh a few short phrases in one sentence as he communicates his heart to Moses. This is who I am. This is the center of who I am. We're going to get God's one sentence. And this one sentence that God gives is going to be picked up time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament and into the New, and it serves as the foundation for how we think about God and how he relates to us. 
And what we're going to see is that the way God describes himself, and as we read through the Old Testament and into the New, the way that the story unfolds is such that if this story is true, if God is who he says he is, then he is both deeply good and splendidly beautiful. And if we could understand God in the way that he's gonna reveal himself to Moses and reveal himself to us, if we could understand deeply how good and how beautiful he is, then we might be able to walk across those bridges to our culture as we communicate God's love for them. So we're gonna look at Exodus 34 this morning, try to unpack what it is that God says about himself in this one sentence that he's gonna give us. If we just remind ourselves kind of where we've been in the last couple of weeks, two weeks ago, we were looking at Exodus chapter 32, which is the story of the golden calf. Moses has come down from the mountain with the law. He finds the people worshiping this idol. He cracks the tablets in anger and we're left sort of wondering, is there any way for the people to recover from here? In chapter 33, God said that he was going to withdraw his presence from the people and Moses pleads on behalf of the people for God to stay with them. And by the end of the chapter, we've been reassured by God that he is going to go with the people. But, but now he wants to reconfirm this covenant. He wants to reinstitute this covenant with his people. So we pick up there in Exodus 34, starting with the first four verses. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets, two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no herd or, or no, let no flocks or herds graze upon that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. So God has called Moses back on the mountain. He instructs him to bring these two tablets so that he can renew, reinstitute this covenant that he has with his people. So Moses does it. He gets these two, these, two command, these two tablets and he goes up on the mountain to meet with God. Now in chapter 33, we saw Moses ask God for two different things. He asked God to show him two different things. He said, show me your ways and show me your glory. Two things he asked of God. And in response, God says this, if we jump back to the end of chapter 33, verse 19, this is God responding to Moses' request to see his glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Moses asks God to see his glory. Now, what comes to mind for you when you think about the glory of God? Right? If God were to reveal his glory to us right now, what would we see? Right? Would it be flashes of lightning? 
Right? Would it be something, something grand where we think about God's power? Maybe we think about his, his mighty acts, the miracle that he's performed. Maybe we think about snow-capped mountains or these images of galaxies that are many, many, many light years away. Right? We, we, these are the images that come to mind when we think about the glory of God. It's big, it's powerful, it's magnificent. And yet here, Moses asks to see God's glory and God says, I'm gonna let my goodness pass before you. See, the glory of God, yes, it is the greatness of God, which is what we oftentimes think of. But the glory of God is also seen in the goodness of God. And God says, okay, Moses, you wanna see my glory? I'm gonna let my goodness pass by you. But the goodness of the Lord, the glory of the Lord is so overwhelming, it's so powerful, it's so much that you can't, you can't see all of it, you can't witness all of it, it, it would undo you, it would be the end of you, Moses. So, so God takes Moses, he sticks him in this cleft of the rock and he says, I'm gonna pass by behind you and I'm gonna let you look at my back as I go. In chapter 33, God told Moses that this was gonna happen. But now in chapter 34, we're actually gonna see what happens as the Lord passes by. And we see this in verses five through seven. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the glory of the Lord. This is the goodness of the Lord. This is, this is the very heart of who God is. It's the God of the universe boiled down into one sentence. And the first thing, the first thing that God says as he wants to communicate himself to Moses, the first thing that he wants Moses to know, that he wants us to know is he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. The idea of mercy is the idea of compassion, of tenderness, gentleness, care, concern. It's the mercy of God. The, the, the grace of God, grace carries the idea of unmerited favor. That, that the Lord is looking for opportunities to pour out his blessing. To, to give us things that we don't deserve. He's looking for ways to do that. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. When you think of God and the way that he relates to you, where does your mind go? Right, what do you expect in those deep places of you? What do you expect God to be like? You know, for some of us, I imagine that we expect God to be distant and removed. Like, like we know he's there, but we don't expect him to be 
very concerned about what's going on in our lives or in our souls. In 2005, Christian Smith and, and a team of researchers interviewed over 3,000 youth across America to, to try to assess what do the young people in our nation think about God? And they condensed their findings into something, a worldview that they called moral therapeutic deism. That is to say, most people, most young people in America at the time had a belief that, that God existed, that he was out there somewhere, but he wasn't very concerned with my life. And really all he expected of me was to just be a good person. And if I did that, I could call on him when I really need something. That's, that's a view of God where he, he's distant and unconcerned with our lives. And, and maybe that's the camp that you find yourself in. Maybe you find yourself in that, in that place sometimes. And, and you know that you might think of God that way if you're more concerned about being a good person than about really cultivating a deep and intimate relationship with God. Or, or you might... Uh, you might find yourself in that camp if you think that God is there when you really need him, but if there's nothing big going on, then you don't really need to talk to him. Some of us, I'm sure, think of God in those deep places of us as if he's distant and unconcerned about what's really going on in our lives. The mercy of God tells us that God is not distant and removed that he cares about what's going on in our lives and that he, he treats us with gentleness and kindness in those places as he sees what's going on. Some of us though, we might not expect God to be distant and unconcerned. Maybe there's some of us that expect God to be angry with us. Like he's just looking for ways to, to, to pour out his punishment on us. And this might be you if you find yourself every time something bad happens in life, wondering what you've done to get God upset. Or, or, or perhaps if, if every time you sin and you do something wrong, you feel like you have to watch your back because you feel like God's going to allow the other shoe to drop, right? We, we, some of us expect that God is looking for reasons to punish us. Like he, he's angry and vindictive and we need to kind of walk around on eggshells while we're around him. The grace of God, God as a God who is gracious with us, tells us that that, that is not the way that God responds to us. That that is not, God is not out there looking for opportunities to punish us. Rather, God is out there looking for opportunities to shower us with his grace, that he is looking for opportunities to back up the dump truck of his blessing on our lives and pour it out. That is God's disposition to us. That is God's character, the, the very center of who he is, a God merciful and gracious, concerned about the details of our lives, full of compassion and looking for opportunities to pour out his grace on us. Dane Ortland who wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, reflects on Exodus 34, and he says this, we expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. 
And then Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks. The bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. When when Moses asks to see the glory of God, we're expecting the lightning, we're expecting the thunder, we're expecting something grand, something great. And God says, this is my goodness. I am a God gracious and merciful. The first thing God wants us to know about him. Then God says that he he describes himself as one who is slow to anger. Says, I'm slow to anger. Literally, I'm long of nostril. I love that phrase, long of nostril. Think about a a, a bull, right? A a bull that's revved up and ready to charge and you look at his face and his nostrils are flaring. Right? And at the drop of a pin, he is going to be charging in rage. That's not our God. Our God is long of nostril. Right? It takes him a long time to be moved to anger. It's not that he will not be moved to anger. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yes, God has, he is also a God of judgment and justice. And yet it takes him a long time to get there. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He doesn't just jump to a place of anger. Ortland, going on from the passage we looked at before, uh, describes it this way. He says, God's anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. God is looking for those opportunities to pour out his love and grace in our lives. It's interesting, in the book of Hebrews, the author encourages people, exhorts people to provoke one another to love. God does not need to be provoked to love. God just naturally loves. We need to be provoked to love because we naturally respond in anger or selfishness or something like this. God does not need to be provoked to love. His love is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. God goes on to say then that he is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. This has to do with God's covenant, commitment, and affection for his people. He says, I'm not going anywhere. My my love for you, my affection for you, my commitment to you as my people, it doesn't change with the wind. It doesn't change with the tides. I am in this for the long haul. I'm a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, the other day I was uh, having a cup of coffee and I set the coffee down on the counter and I was going about getting breakfast for the kids and I accidentally bumped this cup of coffee. And you'll never guess what happened. It was amazing. I bumped this cup of coffee and coffee spilled out, right? It, it, It wasn't juice, it wasn't milk, it wasn't water, it wasn't soda. Coffee spilled out because that's what was in it. Sometimes I get home from work after a long day, a little stressed, a little tired, and I, I get bumped, right? By my wife, by my kids. 
by uh, you know, a, a, a comment here, a lack of concern there, and I get bumped. And on my good days, patience flows out and kindness flows out because there's some of that in there. But on my bad days, anger comes out, frustration comes out, resentment comes out because that's in there too. Sometimes we go about life worrying that if we bump into God, anger is going to rush out. Punishment is going to rush out. Fury is going to rush out. But when we bump God, grace flows out. Mercy flows out. Compassion, forgiveness flows out. We don't have to walk around on eggshells worrying about bumping God. Sometimes we need to do that around some people in our lives, right? We've been conditioned to do that because we know that we all have bad days, but God doesn't have a bad day like that. We don't have to worry about bumping God and having anger rush out. When we bump God with our sin, with our selfishness, with our idolatry, We bump God and grace, mercy, and forgiveness come rushing out. But just because God is a God of grace and mercy doesn't mean that he is not also a God of justice and judgment. And if we remember back to the way that God described him, he wanted us to know this. In his one sentence, he wanted us to know this. Look again at at verse seven, as God describes himself, he says, he's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, Now, if we expect God to overflow with anger when we bump him, if we expect that, that God is a God who, who is full of um, vindictiveness, then we read this and we go, oh, I knew it. I, I, I knew it. I knew it was too good to be true. That, that if, I, if my grandparents sinned, I got to walk around worried that, that one day I'm going to get punished for their sin because that's just the kind of God that God is. But that, that's not what God is saying here. That's not the kind of God that he is, right? This is not a, a Michael Scott kind of moment where, where we have a weakness of God and we're kind of pitching it as a strength. Like, oh, it's, it's not really so bad, right? No, the, the justice and judgment of God are just as much a part of who he is as his love. It's included in God's one sentence. But, but he's not saying that you need to walk around watching your back in case I punish you for the sins of your parents or your grandparents. Rather, what, what God is doing is he's trying to get at something of the nature of sin. And something of the nature of sin is that sin tends to get passed from generation to generation. That the families we grew up in have such a huge impact on who we are as people And that the brokenness of our family has such a big impact on the ways that we ourselves have been broken and sinned against that these sins tend to pass 
from generation to generation. I was talking with a few friends recently and they were recounting an exercise that they went through as a couple because both of them in their families, there was some significant kind of on the surface kind of brokenness that was there. And they wanted to try to understand this better so that they could understand themselves better. And so they, they actually drew a family tree going back you know, to grandparents or to great grandparents where they could remember and kind of put the pieces together. And they plotted out this family tree. And then they went back to this family tree and they began to list off the sins that they knew that were present in the lives of various family members. Right? Not, not as a way to be judgmental, not as a way to be resentful, but just as a way to see what had happened, to see where they came from. And as they did this, they saw all of these patterns. Right? There was marital unfaithfulness that started here and it was passed on to here, here, here. There was a burning anger that started back here and it was passed through the family here, here, and here. There was a, um, a hypocrisy that they could see that, that started back three or four generations. There's this two-faced kind of life and it was passed down from here to here to here. And that's something of the nature of sin. And, and God's, God's saying, I'm not gonna let you off the hook for the ways that you have inherited brokenness from your family. Just because it didn't start with you doesn't mean I'm not gonna hold you responsible. This is your life. And so my friends, as they went through this exercise, they wanted to know sort of what am I up against? What has been passed on to me through the generations so that I might be aware of it, be aware of, of some of how I may have been shaped as a person and hand these things over to the Lord. Because God is gonna hold each of us accountable for our actions. That, that he's not gonna allow us to pass off our sins and our downfalls on our parents. Oh, it's their fault. No, we, we are agents also, responsible for our own lives. And God says, without discounting the ways that we have been formed and malformed by our upbringing, God says, I'm gonna hold you responsible for your life. Now, you know, th this idea, I think, could send us into kind of a state of paranoia, like, oh my goodness, the things that I'm doing in my life might have ripple effects generations down the road. And, and that's, that's fine and that's good to recognize that our sin does have consequences and that our lives are going to impact those that come after us potentially for generations. But, but God's point in including this, in this description of who he is, is not that we would get so much caught up on this sin and become afraid of the judgment of God that might come against it. Rather, what God is trying to do is he's trying to draw a contrast between the greatness of his love for us and the seriousness with which he takes sin. Yes, sin, he's very serious about sin, and yet he wants to be quick to pour out love and grace and forgiveness and slow to show his anger. And we see this because even as God describes himself there at the beginning of, of verse seven, he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Another way to translate that for thousands, and I think a way that more gets at what the author is intending here is to say for thousands of generations. 
Yes, iniquity will be, will be visited on you for three or four generations, but my steadfast love and faithfulness will follow you for a thousand generations, for thousands of generations. It's not even close, God says. The ability that your sin has to destroy your life and the, life of, the lives of those who come after you is real. But God says, it's nothing in comparison to the opportunity for my love, my grace, my forgiveness, my faithfulness to overflow to you and to those who would come after you for thousands of generations. And so my friends who are working their way through their family tree and, and discovering these patterns of sin that had come into their lives or their, their, their lives through their families, they were able to take those things in light of Exodus 34, to bring them to God in confession, realistic of, of these things that have come down to them and say, God, we're giving these things to you. God, God we want to be the turning point. God, we want to be the generation that marks the beginning of those thousands of generations that will be recipients of your blessing, of your grace, of your love, of your forgiveness. Yes, our sin has consequences and we need to be aware of that. And yet each of us has an opportunity to either begin or continue a legacy in our actual genealogical families in our, and in our spiritual families of the grace and mercy of God that far exceeds the ability of our own sin to hijack and to destroy our lives. God says, I am looking for ways to pour out my blessing, to pour out my forgiveness, to pour out my grace on you. Knowing that, knowing that this is God's heart, that this is who God is, it opens the door for us to face the sin that's in our families, to face the sin that's in our own hearts and to confess those things to the Lord. And that's exactly what Moses does as we look at verses eight and nine of Exodus 34. And Moses quickly bowed down his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, now if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for, we, for, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. What a, a beautiful image of the people of God as the inheritance of God. Moses is able to come before God, to bow down, to not try to sugarcoat things, to not try to brush over the sin, to not try to make excuses for himself or the people, but to say, God, we are a stiff-necked people. God, there, there is a rebellion, there is a brokenness, there is something inside of us that just finds ourselves turning away from you time and time again. And yet, as Moses brings that to the Lord, he's confident in light of who God is that he will not be met with anger, that he will not be met with a God who is distant and unconcerned, but that he will be met with grace, compassion, love, and forgiveness. This past week on Friday, uh, the church lost one of its great modern day heroes, Tim Keller. 
At the age of 72, after a three-year battle with cancer, Tim Keller went to be with the Lord. He was a pastor in New York City, an author, an incredible thinker and theologian, and a man of of deep love and faith. And uh, Tim Keller, he, he greatly understood the importance of recognizing our sin. And he greatly understood the importance of recognizing God's grace. And in fact, he saw these two things as intimately connected. And he would go so far as actually to say this, this, the gospel is this. He's going to give us a definition of the gospel. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The sin that has worked its way through the generations of our family, the sin that lives deep down in our hearts and those parts that we're even scared to uncover, as we acknowledge that before the Lord, we can be met in that place by the love and mercy and compassion of the Lord that being honest about the depth of our brokenness allows us to experience the depth of God's love for us in ways that we would never be able to do. And we see this repeated in the history of God's people, right? That time and time again, we will walk away and yet time and time again, God showers us with his grace and forgiveness. And so I wanna give us a moment to respond to this one sentence that God gives us about who he is. To respond in a moment of confession and then in a moment of receiving God's love, grace, and forgiveness. So if you would stand with me, if you're able, I want to uh, ask you that, that if you're comfortable to just extend your arms, just open up your arms as we try to open up our hearts. And Lord, we do. We open our hearts to you in this place. Lord, sometimes it's a scary thing to look into our hearts because we know that there's some ugly stuff in there. Lord, and sin is indeed ugly. And so Lord, we just confess to you. Lord, we are broken. We are sinful. Lord, we are selfish. We are full of pride. We are angry. We lack compassion. Lord, you know us. You know these things about us. And God, we thank you that in Jesus and by his death on the cross, you have paid the price for our sin. That we now stand before you as righteous, covered with the righteousness of Christ by virtue of the blood of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that we can stand before you open and honest and receive the depth of your love for us in ways that we could not otherwise do. So Lord, I I pray that you would allow us to experience that love, to see you as you truly are, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God, that is who you are. We worship you. We praise you. 
In Jesus' name.